This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. My name is Joshua Lewis. In today's program, we've got Chuck Hill with us, and we're going to be discussing what happens after death. What, what happens when we die? Where do we go? Talking about the Amil perspective, it's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Guys, we have an exciting program for you today talking about amillennialism. The early church fathers were the early church fathers, amill. And does this question of the life after death, what happens uh, after we die, does that play into some of this discussion? That's what uh, our guest is here to speak with us today about. Uh, but before we dive into it, you might notice, Josh, you seem to be in a different space. That's because I'm here in Oklahoma City with Michael Miller and Michael Roundtree, and we're filming some really exciting stuff. Uh, more on that in the future. Can't tell you exactly what we're filming, but it's going to be absolutely fantastic. You're going to be thrilled when it comes out. Uh, but without further ado, I want to toss it over to Michael Roundtree. How excited are you, Michael, that I am in your bedroom without any supervision? That's really what I need to ask. I mean, All alone by myself. You have no clue awkward. what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, just in my own house. Well, which I'm in my house too. I don't know if you guys know, this, this is my studio. This is my house. This is just, uh, yeah, but... Uh, it's cool, man. It's it's fun to be with the Remnant guys. We're having a lot of fun uh, talking deep theology all day and planning and filming and all kinds of stuff. So it's great. And uh, also excited about this episode uh, with Chuck Hill. And, um, and Dr. Hill, if you could uh, maybe just... Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, before we uh, before we dive in. Uh, I know you uh, you taught at RTS for a while. I think you're retired now, uh, but maybe just kind of fill us in on uh, and if you have any book projects or anything else you're working on. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for the introduction and for the invitation. It's really uh, an honor. Uh, well, yeah, I was uh, I was born in Nebraska, raised there and uh, went to school there, went to college there. Um, my Corn seminary Husker. degree was Cornhusker, that's right. I, um, I didn't wanna say that right away since you guys are in <laughs> Oklahoma, but uh, actually I would love for that, for that old rivalry to be renewed mm. uh, uh, after all these years, but that gets us uh, a little bit off subject. Um, although we are talking about eschatology here. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, uh, that's right. I, I, I did teach for 27 years at RTS Orlando, and I'm now what they what they call uh, emeritus. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a nice academic word for uh, retired. So, 
Yeah. Awesome. Uh, but busy, busy writing, uh, when I can, uh, a lot of projects, uh, halfway done, or, um, I hope they'll get done at some point. So, okay. Well, we are talking today about, we're talking about the early church fathers and specifically what they believed about the afterlife and in two components, because there are a few different ways of talking about the afterlife. There's what happens when we die as in to my spirit? Does it go to some, uh, does it go to paradise? Does it go to some other place? Church fathers had some various views on this. And uh, and then secondarily, the millennium. What did the early church fathers believe about the millennium? And uh, and what is the relationship between these two things? So uh, so if you're here and you're interested in eschatology, premillennialism, amillennialism, this show is going to be fascinating to you. If you're here and you're just interested in the postmortem, like what happens when you die and what does the Bible say about that and what do the early church fathers believe about that, you're going to be excited about this show too. And, uh, and hey, Josh, there's one more, uh, one more thing I got to say before we dive in because I don't want to forget it. Josh, we were supposed to say something about uh, our newsletter. I, don't, I can't remember if you said something oh, about that. Oh, that, that is a good, good yes. There is a promo code. Super important. There's a promo code for the uh, early bird e-course registration. It's going to go for 13 weeks. We have 117 videos. We're training people in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and a word and spirit approach, a balanced theological approach to practicing and pursuing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so that e-course is uh, is going through another semester here coming up. So sign up for that newsletter, all the information in the description. Josh, did I miss anything? No, you got the discount code there in the email. So once you sign up for it, you'll get you'll get sent that uh, uh, newsletter uh, with the, the discount code on it for I think maybe in the next week or two. So you want to do it quick. Uh, don't don't hold out on it or you're going to miss the, the coupon code, the early bird registration. Thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah. Michael. Super good. Okay. Absolutely. So now that we have not been, now that we're done distracting ourselves, what was the question that, that you had for? for yeah. You? Okay. Okay. So <laughs> I, I brought up, Dr. Hill, I brought up these two realities about the afterlife. One, the millennium, whether we go amillennialism or premillennialism. And some of our viewers, I mean, some of our viewers, very theologically educated, know those words. Others don't know those words. So maybe a, you could do even a little aside and, and define those for us. Um, but amillennialism, premillennialism. So we've got the belief about the millennium on one side and just the spirit and what happens when I die on the other side. What is the relationship between these two? Right. That's a great question. And uh, it's good to ask because a lot of times we don't we don't think of of doctrines being closely connected to each other. You know, we we think of Christology, we think of pneumatology, study of the spirit. Uh, we might think of eschatology, and but doctrines in Scripture are all connected together, and uh, one seems to impinge upon another. And this was uh, was particularly true in the early church with regard to eschatological ideas. That is, uh, eschatology being the study of the end or the end times or what happens at the end. So uh, we could and and. and Theologians have talked about a distinction between individual eschatology and, you might say, global or general 
eschatology. So individual eschatology, what happens to us when we die? And uh, uh, global or general eschatology, what happens to the world, to the universe? Uh, how does God deal with, with uh, the whole creation that he made? Uh, and we, you could theoretically look at those things as kind of two separate categories, but, but in the early church, and I think in scripture, uh, they are, they're, they're closely intertwined. And uh, what you think about what happens after death to the individual seems to have uh, an implication uh, on what happens at the end and, and vice versa. Let me try to uh, try to illustrate this. In the, in the early church, um, Irenaeus, one of my favorite church fathers, um, I'm one of the big uh, uh, Irenaeus fans on the planet. Yeah, against the um, heresies. It's, it's a page turner. It, it is. It's, <laughs> it's great. Um, but he had this, this view that um, uh, the, the souls of the righteous would, be, um, would not go to heaven when, when they die. When, when, when a Christian dies... Uh, we we tend we always think uh, you know what happens after death. Well, we go to heaven, and that is, I think, what the New Testament uh, teaches. But uh, for some reason, I'll try and I'll try to explain this later. But uh, he taught that what happens after death is that the soul goes down to Hades, uh, sort of subterranean region, uh, where it uh, waits for the resurrection of the body. And he even called this the law of the dead, that every, uh, every human being who dies uh, goes to Hades. Uh, now, there are good and there are bad portions of Hades, um, but, um, but you wait there until, until your body's resurrected. Uh, in fact, he said Jesus did that too. He, he, his soul went, went away uh, to the lower parts of the earth until, until it, was, it was raised up on the third day. So we follow that pattern. <clears throat> so we don't go to heaven. Uh, if you think it, that that's, that seems so curious, well, it is curious because, um, uh, well, I'll go back into the background later. But uh, this, he he tied this view in with the notion of there being a future earthly kingdom and a kingdom of Christ on earth before the resurrection, before the the new heavens and new earth, before the last judgment. Now, how, how did that make sense to him? Well, um, to him, you couldn't have a heavenly kingdom. You couldn't be in heaven uh, because Christians weren't really ready for that, that closeness to God quite yet. There had to be a, uh, a period on earth where, where Christ is ruling on the earth and, and uh, things are getting better and uh, we were getting accustomed to the presence of God, so uh, it it just wasn't uh, it, it just wasn't right for us to go straight into the heavenly presence of God. And in fact, he he saw that uh, some of the, the the Gnostics were were saying the opposite, and that that bothered him. In fact, that's one reason I think why he turned to this view is because there were Gnostics saying that when they die. They went not just to heaven, but they went to like the highest part of heaven and uh, where their their Gnostic deities were. Uh, so 
there was there was a close connection, uh, and he said there are some Orthodox, some Orthodox Christians who are not uh, millennialists. That is, they didn't believe in this future kingdom on earth before the resurrection. They didn't believe in that, and the reason is that they're they're too close to these these Gnostics. They think that when they die, their soul goes straight to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so that it's, it's, it's that curious connection that that got me started three decades ago on uh, studying this this connection between individual eschatology and global eschatology hmm. in uh, the church fathers, in fact, in scripture. So I, uh, that might give you a place to start and, and to ask yeah. other questions. About yeah, I can, that's I can... talk about the early church fathers in, in Irenaeus's position. Um, there have been those who have said things like the the amillennial position kind of emerges with Augustine and all of his kind of fanciful interpretations of typology and, and shadows and like allegorical interpretations and things like that. Uh, and they would say that really it was pre-mill was the position up until Augustine. Could you maybe for us define what amillennialism is and premillennialism is um, and then maybe unpack that for us if that's the case, because it sounds like you're already kind of touching on it a little bit that um, there are there is this millennial position that you're saying Irenaeus says is Gnostic. Is that right? Maybe touch in on some of that for us. <clears throat> sure. Uh, <clears throat> All millennialism is the view that we are we are in uh, a period when Christ is reigning. Christ has has died and has risen and has gone to the Father's right hand, and there he reigns and rules over all things for the church, as Paul says. And when he comes back, he will usher in the last judgment and the new heavens and new earth, as Peter says, in which righteousness dwells. So it's it's a very simple understanding of what is the, the, the program for the future, you might say. The church is waiting for Christ to come back, and we're seeking to serve him in his kingdom, his present kingdom. When he returns, there's the resurrection, the judgment, and the new heavens and new earth, eternity. Uh, a premillennial uh, view, or kiliastic view, as it was called in the early church, uh, kilia just being the Greek word for thousand, so it's literally thousand yearism or millennialism, millennial uh, being the Latin word for a thousand, thousand years, so thousand yearism, kiliasm or millennialism or what we'd call premillennialism teaches that we're waiting for Christ to come back, but when he comes back, that he will institute a kingdom on earth. It would be the the kind of resuscitated. Davidic kingdom from the Old Testament. Uh, Jerusalem would be the capital, and Christ would be reigning from Jerusalem over a renewed earth. Righteousness would spread throughout the earth, but there will still be, according to uh, usual brands of premillennialism, still be death in that world. The resurrection of the body has not happened yet, uh, at least for most people. And so uh, after a thousand years of reign, uh, then there's a rebellion again, and Christ puts down that rebellion, and then there's the last judgment and eternity. Uh, 
So though that's a little, it's a little more complex, and there are different versions of premillennialism or chiliasm, but that's the, the kind of simplistic, uh, the simplest version, I think, that when Christ comes back, so the, when, when we say pre, post, and awe, what we're referring to is the, the coming of Christ, is the coming of Christ pre the millennium, before the millennium, is it post the millennium? Is it after a millennial period, a period of uh, of glory on the on the earth, or are we talking about a, a situation where uh, the millennium, it, the pre and post doesn't really fit in because uh, we have a different view of the millennium. The all millennial view looks at Revelation twenty, the great millennial passage of the New Testament, and sees that this is talking about the present age. So it, the all-millennial view is that we are now in the millennium. So you could call it and, present millennialism, if you want. And will. is it true that the early church was pre-millennial until Augustine, and then all-millennialism took over? No, that's not true. Okay, okay. <laughs> that, that's been, that's been, uh, that has been a, a popular view for a long time, but it's... Again, the truth is is usually more complex than that. I would say that 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 all millennialism, in in my view, is taught in the New Testament. But even if you don't agree with that, it's it's very early in the early church, uh, well before Augustine. There are premillennialists also very early in uh, our church history. So, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to give you my view on how that, that developed. But just to, just to state right away, like nobody, nobody can say, oh, all the church fathers agree with us. And, you know, either, neither side can say that. Yeah. Uh, so you, you do have, uh, uh, I think, Hippolytus, um, obviously, uh, well, Origen, Cyprian, Clement of Alexandria, you have a number of, I would argue there are many others as well, but those are the ones that say something something positive or something discernible about Revelation 20 or about the millennium itself, that I would say they're, they're all millennial before Augustine. Uh, and there are others, as I said, that I think we can conclude were all millennial by other things that they say. And that gets us to where we were talking about the connection between individual and global eschatology. So if this connection uh, is valid, and I think it is all the way through the ancient period, you can, you might say, access a person's view on the millennial question if they say something about what they believe about life after death for the for the soul for the individual, because uh, what Irenaeus said in linking these these views together, that is, that the millennial view makes sense for a a subterranean uh, intermediate state. What happens to the soul? We go down. We go to Hades, a waiting place uh, under the earth, not in heaven. We wait. Because the soul must rise then and be reunited with the body, live for a period on the earth, uh, and then and then be uh, lifted, you might say, to the, the new heavens and new, new, new heavens and new earth will will uh, 
take over after that. So that made sense to him uh, and to a lot of the, uh, uh, to the, to the premillennialists. But uh, the, the all-millennial view is simply that uh, when we die, we go to heaven. As, as simple as that. The, at, but if uh-huh. you're in the in heaven with the kingdom with with Christ in His kingdom, uh, it it really obviates the whole necessity for an earth kingdom. You're already in the presence of Christ. You're in the presence of God. You're in His kingdom, and He's ruling over all things. So the only logical uh, elevation. What's what's better than that? is when he returns and we're reunited with our bodies and there's a resurrection. And then we're in a world where righteousness dwells and there is no longer any sin in, uh, in the world that God created. Huh. So, so uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, sure. So what I'm hearing you say is that the, pre-mill- the early premillennialists believed that believers don't go to heaven immediately upon death, rather they go to the good part of Hades. So they're not suffering in torment like Lazarus in Luke 16. They're in Abraham's bosom, basically. They're they're in the good part of Hades, but basically away from Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Ouch. Okay, so so that was the premillennialist view for hundreds of years. And then the amillennialist view matched the modern Christian view, in most cases, of your spirit goes straight to heaven. So let me ask you this. Is the contemporary expression of premillennialism, what happens immediately upon death, what the premillennialist today says is what the amillennialist has always said? which is your spirit goes straight to heaven when you die. And so there appears to be a distinction between what premillennialists now say and what premillennialists then said. Premillennialists then said your spirit goes to Hades. Premillennialists today say you go to be with the Lord. So let me ask you this. Is contemporary premillennialism novel? (laughs) Yes, it is in the history of the church. So contemporary okay. premillennialism, we could say, let, let's say, particularly 19th century, but I, I think you go back to the 18th and 17th century when you might have something that resembles uh, modern premillennialism. But it's interesting that throughout hi- Christian history, when premillennialism did crop up after Augustine, it very often entailed some notion of either a, a subterranean, you know, view of the intermediate state, or there was this view called sometimes called mortalism or soul sleep. It would it would go along with that. So it, there was this this strange consistency, like 17th and 18th century uh, English mortalism. Uh, there, there there was this view that the soul sleeps between death and the resurrection. And when, when it comes back, you know, to, to resurrection uh, time, there is a, an earthly millennium and, and then the, before the last judgment. So it does crop up 
throughout uh, Christian history. But yeah, it, it, I would say it is novel. That's not what the the early Chileans, uh, premillennialists, believe. Can the premillennialists of the early church? Or, okay, so when, when premillennialists today say, "Hey, everybody wants to do this. Everybody wants to do this." If you're charismatic, you want to go back in history and find all the guys that believed in the gifts that agreed with you. The cessationists do the same thing. They're like, "Hey, look, Augustine said this thing about the gifts. We're he was a cessationist, right? Like, they, we all want to source like our theology in the early church because it just means that." It, they were closer to the apostles. They agree with us. Therefore, this must be a fair interpretation. It's tertiary evidence, right? Like that's, we're all looking for it. So mm-hmm. is it even fair to have premillennialists use the early church fathers if their view was that different? Is it even premillennialism or is it just something else? Um, yes, maybe the millennium was similar, but what mm-hmm. happened to the human soul after they died? Like, is it something entirely different? Like, like Michael said, it's novel. So is it is it justified for if a premillennialist said, "Hey, look, I got all these premillennialist church fathers," so I'm going to quote, and you go, "Ah, you got to take the whole thing. You got to, yeah. you got to be like, do you hold your, do you hold their feet to the fire when you're talking to them? Like, you got to believe in, you know, purgatory. You got to believe in this Abraham's bosom sort of thing before you can be, you can, you can call that guy your guy. You have to, you have to go all in. Uh, is that fair? <laughs> You're going to Hades, buddy. Uh, yeah, good luck. Hey, everything's fair in theology. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, you know, I don't. Uh, I, I'm too nice for that myself. Uh, but yeah, I think I think uh, uh, a reasonable uh, apologist could do that. At least challenge the person and say, "Well, yeah, if you're going to claim Irenaeus, if you're going to claim." let's say Justin or Tertullian in particular, you have to look at the whole thing, their whole eschatology and why, uh, why it made sense to them. It, it didn't make sense to them to talk about one without the other. That is, it didn't make sense to them to talk about going to heaven after death and uh, then a future millennium on earth. I mean, why would you have right. that? You've, you're in heaven, you're with Christ. Um, it's, you have, you have the, it's, it's like hanging on to the symbol when the reality is there. Uh, the, the earthly kingdom of David, let's say, and Solomon was to show us something, right? It was, it was, it was there to teach us about God's kingdom and the presence of God and what, what God is like and what living for God is like. You're, if you're in heaven, uh, you you already sort of passed that stage, uh, uh-huh. and all that's left is the new heavens and new earth, in which righteousness yeah. dwells. Right. So yeah, it wouldn't have made sense to to them. In fact, I think Tertullian got kind of called out on this by other Christians because by even by his time he was early early third century, end of the second, early third century. And of course, Christians believed in that they went to, to heaven. They went to Christ when they when they died. So he ended up making an exception. Uh, if you're a martyr, then you'll get into paradise. The the the, uh, the, the martyr's blood is the key what a that opens paradise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of so that kind of Muslim. Get your head That's chopped like, off. As long, yeah. As long That's as right. you, That's right. you die committing jihad, you get in instantly. Everyone else, feathers I mean, and weighing of hearts and stuff. You can be baptized with water. That's not good. Even you baptize with your blood, then that will get you into paradise, into heaven. 
Yeah. So generally, uh, early premillennialists did not deal very much with the New Testament teaching on what happens for Christians when they die. But and didn't, uh, Tertullian had to, he was sort of forced to, and he said, well, when Paul said that to depart and be with Christ, uh, to, 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 uh, to, be, to be absent from bodies, to be present with the Lord, he's talking as a martyr, as a future martyr. Uh, he could say that because he, he was going to be a martyr. But see, this was, um, this was the radical change that Jesus brought to Jewish eschatology, Right. If you were a Jew in first century Palestine, let, let's say a, a 21st century evangelist could go back and say, hey, um, why should God let you into his heaven when you die? And he would say, what are you talking about? God doesn't let anybody into his heaven when, when they die. Uh, we don't go to heaven. We go to Sheol. We go to the soul. Even think of think of uh, uh, Saul and Sam calling up Samuel uh, with by the witch of Endor. Samuel yeah, comes Samuel from below, right? He Samuel uh-huh. comes up. He doesn't come down from above. He comes from up from below. Uh, the whole presentation in the Old Testament is is very shadowy. But we we have uh, you know Jacob saying, "You'll bring my my gray hairs down to Sheol. You don't go up to Sheol. You go down." And so this uh, this notion was was pl- picked up on even more in intertestamental Judaism and some of the uh, apocalyptic literature like uh, Second Baruch and Fourth Ezra and so forth. For they were a little more explicit even in the Old Testament. The souls of even the righteous would go away to to underground chambers, you know, somewhere in the spiritual the spiritual realm was was still underground for them for for the souls. Uh, until the resurrection, and this is where I think, this is where I think that early Christian premillennials got their eschatology, not really from the New Testament, but from some of these Jewish sources. So when when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, "Today you will be with me in paradise," we don't realize how radical that would have been in the first century to, to Jewish ears. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You, I mean, uh, th- this dying thief uh, on the cross, um, there was a notion among these Jewish apocalyptists that the only people who ever made it to paradise were those few people who never died. Uh, Enoch walked with the Lord and he was taken, right? Uh, Elijah went away in a chariot and they their deaths are not recorded. Uh, and so they were the only people thought to be in paradise. And in Jewish eschatology, at least apocalyptic eschatology, they would have to come back to earth at some point. Why? They had to die like everybody else. So for Jesus to say to the thief on the cross, who's dying along with him today, you will be with me in paradise. That is groundbreaking, that, that's unheard of. And so, and that right there tells you, I think that the, the basis for the Christian hope of being with Christ, he'll be not just in paradise, you'll be with me in paradise. 
And if you notice this, it is, it's the theme throughout the New Testament. Uh, in, in John's gospel, he says, I go to uh, prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come and take you to be with me. For where I am, there you will be also. Uh, and so when Paul says he desires to depart and be with the Lord, for that is far better. It's with the Lord. It's not just departing here. And when he says we are absent from the body in 2 Corinthians 5, we are present, not just in heaven, not just in a great place. We're present where? With the Lord. So this constant, this, this theme, why Christ, how he changes things is that he, of course, rose from the dead. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And the, the, the idea that his people then after their deaths could be with him where I am there, you will be also. Uh, that is the radical uh, break with Jewish eschatology that, mm. that Jesus affected. You know, he, he tells, Paul tells Timothy uh, that Christ has brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. He's, he's revealed uh, the, the newness of Christian eschatology. Yes. So that newness, of uh, it's in Romans 8, you know, that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities or things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So even mm -hmm. death cannot break that. So uh, at death, the Christian's hope is to be with Christ. And where is Christ? He's not in Hades. He's not in the Old Testament Sheol. He's yeah. at the Father's hand in heaven. And so that's the Christian's hope. And the only thing beyond that is that when he comes back and, and, uh, and we're restored to our bodies and, and uh, there's a physical dimension um, and there's the new heavens and new earth. So, yeah. yeah. And that's what I think is. So when you, you see most of early, of early Christianity taking that, that, that hope on, that eschatology on. And so, uh, some of the earliest writings we have, uh, Ignatius of Antioch uh, uh, talks about going to be with God and uh, 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 Polycarp as well. And uh, many others talk about Barnabas. Barnabas yes, the shepherd of Hermas, uh, uh, Melito of, of Sardis. They, they, they assume or they talk about uh, going to be with Christ, going to uh, the heavenly kingdom and so forth. And uh, that shows that they've, they've taken on this new Christian eschatology. And that's, that's why I think the, the, the Kilias, the premillennialist uh, eschatology, is a, you might say, a holdover uh, from pre-Christian Judaism that, excuse me, hasn't, hasn't quite laid hold of the full Christian hope. Hmm. Interesting. So um, a while back, you mentioned Tertullian. Tertullian was a premillennialist. He had this little loophole where if you're a martyr, your spirit can go straight to heaven. So I really have two questions about Tertullian. And my memory is vague on this, and I bet yours is much sharper because you spent a lot of your time, a lot more time than I have studying the church fathers. Um I feel like I remember some quote from Tertullian that his understanding of Hades for the believer 
was mm. almost painful, but I could be wrong on that. Maybe, mm. maybe I just made that up. Uh, and then question two was, I feel like I remember uh, that Tertullian has some quote where he, he kind of goes out of his way to say, hey, if you guys believe that your spirit goes to heaven when you die, then uh, the thousand year reign millennium after Christ returns is completely superfluous. It's completely redundant. Like he, he, he makes that point strongly. So question, question one is what did he believe about that subterranean existence? Was it in some way painful in his view? Um, and question two, uh, did he have some direct statements about the, the, premillennial view of the millennium being redundant if the spirit goes straight to heaven hmm yeah the first one uh yes well i don't think he would really try to describe it as as a painful existence but it is interesting he does he does talk about jesus uh parable where he he talks about um, you know, go, go to your, not the parable, I guess, but he says, you know, go to your accuser and make peace. Uh, otherwise, uh, you will not be, get out until you've paid the last farthing, right? You'll be, you'll be, uh, you'll be taken to, to, to jail and you'll, you'll not get out till you've paid the last farthing. And he does interpret that as like, uh, as talking about the soul, the Christian soul and, and what happens after death. Uh, going to Hades. Now, you, he sort of, I think, as as I remember it, he, he leaves that whole question unanswered. Well, what would that payment be exactly? Uh, one of the questions that comes up is, is this Kilias, this premillennial notion of, of a subterranean existence, is that related to purgatory in any way? And I would say not uh, directly. That is, it's not there. I don't get from from them the notion uh, that there's a need for purgation. That is, a, there's not a notion that you have to pay for your sins, mm -hmm. right? You have to atone in some way. But there is a notion, uh, even Irenaeus has this that notion, that you're not quite ready for the presence of God yet. And that there's a sort of a necessary waiting and, and growth in in uh, sanctification. Maybe that's what uh, it was. Yeah, yeah. That, that there's this continuing it. sanctification, right? Yeah. And even uh, Irenaeus even talks about, and this might be what you're thinking about with the other one as well. The other question, uh, Irenaeus, I think, is says more on that than Tertullian. That is. Uh, he he says, you know, this is why you don't you 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 don't uh, you other Christians don't agree with a an earthly millennium, an earthly uh, kingdom, is because uh, you are ready to usher the soul into heaven right when you die, and mm -hmm. so the, it, it makes sense to him you know, why they wouldn't believe in a uh, a time of an earthly kingdom uh, where there's still death before the resurrection. Right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. All right. Yeah, you go ahead. I, I oh, okay. Uh, well, I was I was thinking about this. You talk about earthly kingdoms and stuff. Uh, there, I mean, right now, if a premillennialist is listening to 
this video, right? And they're going, hey, but there's all these promises to the Jewish people in the Old Testament about this millennial reign, and they're not fulfilled if there's no millennium. So has that been important to early church thinking theology for the premillennialists that were, I don't know, early church? Uh, those guys, were they fighting that same battle? Were they beating that same drum? To an extent, they were. To an extent. That is, they, they did generally believe that these uh, promises that you see in the prophets uh, about a renewed earth and a renewed Davidic kingdom, they did believe that those had to have a, a, an earthly fulfillment. But one of the big differences between them and modern premillennialists is that the early ones were more like all millennialists in their interpretation of Israel. So that means that they were they were fully on board. They would sound like an all millennialist when they talked about who would be in the millennium, who would be blessed in the millennium. See, for them, it was not a Jewish millennium. For them, it was not that God had in order for God to be true. He had to uh, there had to be so many actual Jews that had to be saved and that it was not a the, the millennial kingdom was not a Jewish what we might call a Jewish kingdom it was not centered around Jews uh, he is a Jew Paul said who is one inwardly right and circumcision is a matter of the heart not of the flesh lest anyone should boast and uh, Irenaeus himself will say God is able as Jesus as John the Baptist said God is able to raise up from these stones children to Abraham so Irenaeus is very much on the page of the, the kingdom is for believers. Now, you can be a Jewish believer, of course. You can be a Gentile believer, but, but it's not a Jewish kingdom. It's not, it's not a kingdom promised to the literal descendants of Abraham. To be a descendant of Abraham is, is to be one by faith. What, so about, they were, what about the temple? Like, as you're talking about Israel, like, what about the temple? That's a big one, right? There's going to be temples. There's going to be animal sacrifices. Did they take kind of an all-mill perspective on that as well? Were they going, ah, this is just, this is an allegory, and this is talking about worship, and this isn't like a literal fulfillment of a literal third temple? I mean, how do they, how do they understand that? Yeah, I think you might find a little bit of difference among, among them on that. Some of them won't don't talk about that very much at all. And you could see from other things they say, they might take a spiritual view of the temple. Uh, as we have in the New Testament, the temple of, of, the, of our body or the temple of the church. But but there is some indication of that in some of them that they 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 believe there will be a return to the sacrificial system. But. I, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember uh, where where that might be found. Uh, it's not on, the, not on the tip of my tongue. Okay. But generally, generally, they don't make very much of that. They don't make very much of that, and it be, and it, it fits because that that whole system is seen as as fulfilled in Christ. So the the tendency, uh, apart from well, they, they did see that there was a necessity to have um, a restored Jerusalem, a restored land, and uh, the abundance of nature. There were the the lion had to lie down with the lamb, and and so forth. Even Irenaeus, though, 
you might kind of fudged on that or he took a both and approach. He said, yes, the line lying down with the lamb. That does that does talk about the peace that Jews and Gentiles enjoy. There's no war and no real hostilities between believers. Now, once they're believers, Jew and Gentile doesn't matter. He says, yes, that's true. But but one day it'll be true also in the physical realm. So he he kind of held a, a both and view. There was there was not a strict anti-allegorism, uh, uh, even among the the uh, the premillennialists. Uh, they they might criticize other views for being allegorical, but they themselves often engaged in, you might say, allegorical exegesis uh, for various things. Okay, now I want to ask about a specific person, Polycarp. And the reason I want to ask about him is, you know, when we talk about the early church fathers, everybody wants to claim them. It doesn't matter what your theological position. I mean, I've been reading guys who are pre-trib rapture trying to say that uh, that their view is found in the early church fathers and it's simply not. And um, and so, which, hey, you know, it is what it is. But, uh, mm-hmm. but spe- specifically talking about Polycarp, because, I mean, this guy's pastor of Smyrna, one of the seven churches in Revelation, a disciple mm-hmm. of the dude who wrote Revelation. Premillennialists uh, mm-hmm. often claim Polycarp for their team, but you claim Polycarp for your team. Uh, mm-hmm. So who who gets Polycarp? Which jersey is he wearing? Is he wearing a premillennial uh, jersey or is he wearing an amillennial jersey? For for the Abbott and Costello fans, who's on first? I'm sorry, that's my. Keep going. Go ahead. Uh, well, Polycarp, uh, yeah, he's one of the captains on the uh, all millennial team. Oh, um, he didn't. He not just yeah. on the team. No, he's, I'm he's just joking. He, he only because only because he's so early and and so close to John. Uh, the, Polycarp doesn't say. Anything that I re- recall that that is too uh, committal about, you might say, general eschatology, whether he's uh, about the earth and the millennium. What he does say uh, is he talks about um, that that certain saints did not run uh, in vain, but they are they're in his his phrase was they're in their due place. Uh, with the Lord, with the Lord. Mm. So that's that's not very much, but it tells us, I think, which side he's on. You know, which which team he's on. Because if he talks about the departed Christians as being with the Lord, that's not a self conscious early Christian premillennialist. Because, like I said, you you have it with with uh, Papias. You have, you have remnants of it with Papias, not not the full thing, but you have you have uh, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. Irenaeus very explicit on this that 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 the believers don't go immediately to be with the Lord uh, when they die; their souls go to, uh, uh, to to Hades. So, if that holds true, and that that typology, that that connection of doctrines which you can follow through Jewish apocalyptic, Jewish views, and in the early Christian 
uh, eschatology as well. If that holds, if that holds true, then you'd say Polycarp is on the amillennial side. Now, I, I do say that with uh, not with hesitation, but I do say uh, it's limited. The evidence is limited because he doesn't say directly, you know, he doesn't talk about the thousand years and he doesn't talk about Christ's uh, kingdom on earth or anything like that. He doesn't that. use the language, I'm the captain of team amillennialism. Yeah, everybody just knew it, though. <laughs> so let, let's Player say, coach. by way of illustration for people who are listening, right? If there was no evidence on whether I was, you know, conservative or liberal in my voting policy, and I said, hey, I'm for, you know, closed borders, like, or protected borders, right? I'm, I'm for gun, uh, you know, uh, you know, Second Amendment, uh, you know, we, we should be able to uh, have free speech, we should be able to carry arms, we should, and I'm like, I'm, I'm list, going down this list. I've never said I'm a conservative, but by deduction, because, yeah. because I have right. some of these beliefs, I must therefore kind of be in this camp. What you're saying is we don't see all of his beliefs, but we see some right. of his beliefs, and those beliefs that we do see are not the beliefs of the premillennialists. Is that what I understand you saying? That's very good. Yes, that's that's a good way of putting it. So in the book, I try to be, you know, sort of, uh, careful about that to say what we what we know and what we don't know. Right. So it's not it's not absolutely clear what he would have said about the millennium. Now, uh, because of what he says about the intermediate state, what happens to the the Christian after death, that shows me you know what color jersey that that he's wearing. But you could you could argue and say, well, no, he's like a modern premillennialist. He believed that you know you could have mix these doctrines that don't fit elsewhere. But you know he had he had them. Well, you, it's an argument from silence. You can hold that if you want, I guess. But I don't. What you can't do is just claim him. I think as a as a premillennialist. I think that you might say people people are tempted to claim him because he was the teacher of Irenaeus. So and for. In, in my view, you have things were, were a little bit unstable, even among the premillennialists. That is, I think Irenaeus adopted premillennialism kind of late in the game. I don't think he started out that way. You can read uh, the first three books, three and a half, almost four books of his uh, Against Heresies and think he is a, an amillennialist. But towards the end, in the fourth book and the fifth book, fifth book very explicitly, he adopts uh, premillennialism. And I think this is a, very much due to the fact that premillennialism was a great, provided a great argument against uh, the Gnostics. And that was his main, they were his-, his Yeah, he writes uh, against Valentinus opponent. and all the Gnostics, right. big anti-Gnostic guy. So he adopted right. potentially an argument that would help him right. fight his opponents rather than making a clear deduction straight from scripture. The Gnostics say this, this kind of looks like, smells like Gnosticism, therefore let's mm -hmm. fight this. So yeah, and, that and makes and a ton of sense. In. I want to jump in really quick. Uh, Dr. Hill, isn't there, like in your book, don't you say something about like Irenaeus- a certain writing that you think was by him, maybe he used a pseudonym or maybe it was anonymous. I can't remember, but, but beyond just in his book against heresies, wasn't there something he wrote uh, outside of that, that made you, that indicated his amillennialism to you? Did I make that up? 
There, there, no, well, there is another document from Irenaeus's time, and in fact, it comes from his his place. He was in in uh, ancient Gaul, modern day France, uh, Lyon, actually, and there was a pogrom, a, a persecution of Christians in his day. There, a great uh, a slaughter of of Christians. Uh, that was one seventy seven A.D. And there was a document written after that persecution that recorded what happened in the, the martyrdoms of the Christian there. And a lot of people have thought over the years that Irenaeus was the author of that. So it's not proven. It, it would make sense. Uh, he was he's very literate. There are some connections between uh, that and his, his against heresies. And it's very contemporary with him. But uh, if he wrote that, that would also that would also lend a lot of credence to the idea that he was, uh, he started out life, you might say, as an all-millennialist. Um, and I think that there was premillennialism before him that he could draw on in, in this person called uh, Papias of Hierapolis. And I think he, he drew upon Papias's work to then uh, fight against Gnosticism, which was, which was very anti-material, that anti uh, the, the physical creation was a blooper, you might say. So, in their in their view, so the whole idea of a resurrection of the body—why would you want that? Uh, and so, it was a great way, I think, for Irenaeus to refute Gnosticism hmm. if he adopted the, the Kiliastic view. So, it's very, very interesting. Help me with the lineup, okay? Because we talked about—we're pretty sure we've got a captain. Um, you know, who else is on the team here? Early church, you know, we're saying, okay, this idea that everyone was pre-mill until Augustine, that's not the case. Give me a lineup. Who are the guys that you're like, these are Amil dudes. If you're reading church history, you want proof that amillennialism has been around for a hot minute. What's your, what's your all-star team? Well, again, they, they go back pretty early, but, but the evidence, the evidence is not plentiful, but I would say that, that Ignatius of Antioch, who talks about, uh, uh, attaining to the Lord, attaining to God when he, when he's martyred, he's on his way to martyrdom. He knows it. He's in captivity. He talks about he will attain God when he, when he gets, when he's, when he's killed. Uh, you have uh, the shepherd of Hermas. You have, um, I think the I think the later Justin. I think it was the opposite for uh, Justin and Irenaeus. I think Justin probably did learn premillennialism in his early Christian life, and then as he got older, he moved away from that. Uh, and he, he was so going to be later, a martyr. He wanted to go yeah, be with Jesus. He was, he was going to be. A, <laughs> that's right. So in Tertullian's view, he would have. Uh, he would have gone anyway to, to heaven. Um, but then after that, you have uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Hippolytus of either Asia Minor or Rome. People are not quite sure exactly where there might have been two Hippolytus. Uh, but Hippolytus in his commentary on Daniel uh, makes a co comment or two about the first resurrection. And he also talks of uh, the first resurrection um being being in heaven, and he relates the uh, the, the, the Christians uh, after death as being being in heaven. Uh, he's uh, pretty poetic about that, uh, and 
of course, you have origin of uh, Alexandria and then Caesarea. You have Cyprian of Carthage. Uh, even though he was a great lover of uh, Tertullian's works, uh, he was. So what not, you're saying is just one or two, not many. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not, not, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it was it was almost the you were you were notable by being exceptional if you were Achilles, if you're a premillennials. Now, I say that though, but having to to uh, concede that some of the some of my favorites uh, were were premillennial, at least at one point in their in their yeah, Irenaeus is the best. I mean, if you if you're a charismatic today, mm -hmm. you've got to read Irenaeus, just hands down. Like the the things that we're seeing happening in the charismatic movement that are causing things to go wheels off. Like just go read Irenaeus against the heresies. It is it's like <laughs> it is the uh, I don't know Magnus Opus. It's it, it's it's what keeps the train on the track, fellas. Like read the book, okay? Um, anyway, I say that because it's it's really important that uh, the this vast swath of Christianity, by and large. Traditional cessationism is a dying movement. The vast majority of Christianity is continuationist. And with biblical illiteracy on the rise and these hyper-charismatics coming out with new revelations that sound like scripture, these new practices and new secret things of like how to do things to get your prayers answered, I have an impossible time reading Courts of Heaven and not hearing Irenaeus screaming in my ears. So um, I would just really encourage you, if that's if you're out there, whether no matter where you stand on this issue, if you're if you're continuationist, mm -hmm. you should read Irenaeus. It's it's I think a, a must read. Um, anyway, I I share that passion with you on, on Irenaeus for sure. That's great. Okay. Always always glad to hear another Irenaeus fan. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what are we saying? Okay. Uh, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, um, uh, yeah, uh, Pamphilus of Caesarea. You've got you know the list goes on and on. But yes, your next question. Right. Okay, well, talk to us about the creeds. Uh, I mean, the famous ones of the apostles and the Nicene Creed, but there are others, of course. So what do the creeds teach us about what the historic church has thought about the millennium and the afterlife, if anything? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I should have them before me as I, as I try, to, try to answer that. But you, you can talk about a couple of, of clauses. Uh, in the Apostles' Creed, of course, there's the, uh, he descended into hell. He descended into hell or Hades and rose again on the third day. That's very controversial. Uh, I could, I'll come back to that one. Leave that aside for a moment. But in the, let's see, I believe it's in the Nicene Creed. I could be corrected if I'm wrong here. But in the Christology section, it talks about uh, Christ, who, his, whose kingdom shall have will no have end. no end. Right? Yeah. It says, yeah, he, uh, uh, he. How does it go? Uh, suffered under Pontius. Pi no, he crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death, and was buried kingdom on the third day. He no rose end. again, uh, mm -hmm. in accordance with the scriptures, and sent into heaven. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Yeah. His kingdom will have no end. Yeah, that was, I think, specifically written to uh, against the Kilias, that is against the premillennialists. That is, it was to say that his kingdom, th there's, there's not a limitation of a thousand years or any other period 
uh, on his his kingdom. It has no end. So I think that was an explicit uh, dig at that idea. Um, even though, to be fair, the premillennialists would have also said, yeah, his eternal kingdom, there is an eternal kingdom after the thousand years. So you might, if I were, if I were premillennialist, I would think, well, that's maybe not quite fair. But I think that was their their point. Um, you you don't put a, an end an end date on Christ's kingdom. So I, th I think that that relates. Um, and if you want to talk about the uh, uh, he descended into hell, I know again that's that's uh, been controversial at times. But I think that whole idea uh, and and the reason why why it is there is is to show that Christ overcame not just death but the consequences of sin the devil and death that is he effected a change for the righteous dead so i think that's what's behind the it's saying he he descended into hades or descended into hell what's not spoken is that he in some in some expressions he he led well he led captivity captive he led uh the the righteous into heaven and whether you conceive of that in sort of spatial terms like he raised them up he he actually brought them from one place to another you do have the fact that as we were talking about before in the old testament samuel comes up from below and in the New Testament, we go up to heaven. So there is a transition that Christ effects, and it's only it's only through Christ and his his uh, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that this happens. But that uh, he effects a change for the righteous dead. They're now in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Hmm. So I think that's that's what's unspoken. That's what's behind the the phrase. Uh, he descended into hell. Okay. That's good. Super helpful. All right. Well, um, I, I think it's it's about that time. We're a couple minutes over, actually. But I think it'd still be good for us to end with a little nutshell comment. And so, uh, Dr. Hill, I'll ask you in just a moment to give us your take-home nugget, your nutshell. Yeah. What would you like people to, to take away from this interview uh, or what final thoughts do you have? And Josh, uh, I'll ask you the same question. I'm going to ask Josh first to give our guest just a moment to collect his thoughts on that. So Josh, what about you? What would be your, uh, your walk away? Man, I, I think, uh, I think my walk away is probably maybe check source material before you repeat, repeat it. Uh, I think that's a big deal. I think we will hear a scholar say something like all the church fathers said this, and we really respect that theologian and we just repeat it. Um, and I think that what I found, uh, especially when people say all of scholarship agrees or uh, uh, all of the church fathers agree, um, that I end up reading someone else and they're like, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> like you can just, just so quickly uh, find that that's just not the case. And, and we as humans, we want to lend credence to the things that we believe because we don't want to, we don't want to be seen as faulty or having... Um, you know, uh, flawed logic or reason. 
So we're looking to great men of the past to say, uh, I'm in alignment with these men, and it, it gives us some validation, and it, and it shows some consistency from the scriptures to the early church fathers. And in, in doing that, oftentimes we paint with a broad brush, saying things that maybe are a little bit over-exaggerated. Uh, and I think that from this interview, I would just say that that's one of the things that I think, uh, um, you know, Chuck has been very careful to say, okay, uh, I don't want to overstate this. Uh, I, I only have these pieces of evidence, and I think we can, can deduce this. And he's actually going out of his way to give a longer answer um, that, that takes more work, but it's actually a healthier answer. It's a more appropriate answer because it's just trying to be as true to the source material as possible. And, and I would just encourage people, I, I've heard so many myths that are just not concrete that they've repeated from scholarship. So be a, be a student. I, I'm or, I'm yeah, not as much of a usually, student as I should be. Or usually from, usually from pastors who are quoting other pastors who are quoting other pastors uh, and not necessarily Saul's scholars. name was changed from Saul to Paul, that kind of thing. Yeah, stuff like that. So, yeah. okay. Well, Dr. Hill, well, what about you? Well, let me, just What's a closing thought. It's just, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm a better student of church history than I am, because I'm not. Uh, there's a couple of church fathers that I really like, and I'm, I've picked a few of them that I've read some of their stuff, and I've tried to push through a lot of their content. So um, even in me saying, go check the sources, I'm not, I don't want the audience to assume that I have a deeper knowledge of church history than I do, because that's not true either. So anyway, off to church, uh, off to check. Well, uh, first of all, Josh, that, that is a really, really good word. Uh, you know, the, the reformers had this, this notion, ad fontes, to the source, to the sources, right? So uh, go to the sources whenever you can instead of just taking somebody's word for it. That's, that's a, a bedrock rule. Uh, I think the thing I would want to leave people with is that uh, it was Christ who brought life and immortality to light in the gospel that... G the break that Jesus made with the common Jewish eschatology of his day and of the, the, the Jewish teachers of the day was when he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that blew everything open. That and his, his, his other teaching about preparing a place for them and taking, taking his disciples with him to be with him where he is. Uh, that reoriented all of the Jewish eschatology. And I, and I don't just mean what happens after death. I mean, the whole, what happens to the world. What we, what, and the rest of the New Testament, I think, follows in that renewed eschatology. And it's, it's remade because of what Christ has done, because he's actually risen from the dead. And he has, he's entered his heavenly kingdom. And when he sits down at the Father's right hand, it's not just a comfy chair. It's a throne, right? So he's, uh, he's ruling, and his, his kingdom now shall have no end. So that is of a piece. That's the New Testament eschatology. And I see that carried on through the early church, but there are, there are hiccups, right, that, uh, the early church and even our favorite theologians don't get everything right as we don't get everything right. So uh, that's what I would like to leave everybody with is uh, the focus on Jesus and what what he did. The, the focus of eschatology is on Christ and Amen. our hope is to be with him. Amen. That's good. Amen. Well, guys, that is a wrap today. Dr. Hill, thank you so much 
for joining us, guys. If you're listening to this and you're saying, I am so deeply pre-millennial and I uh, dislike everything all millennialists say, well, guess what? We got lots of episodes with pre-millennialists. We uh, interview people from across the theological spectrum. You can check it all out if you subscribe to this channel. Of course, you don't have to subscribe to check it out. You can just click on whatever it is, search Remnant Radio and your favorite theological topic. We got lots of good stuff. So, so do that, but also like the video, subscribe to the video, check the link to our description, sign up for the newsletter, sign up for our e-course coming out soon. Get that early bird discount for a limited time by signing up for that uh, that newsletter. So uh, that's uh, that's a thank it. Josh, did I miss anything there? Man, you did a great job. You landed that plane. Oh, thank you. Josh says I did good. So, uh, so guys, we'll uh, actually not see you Wednesday this week. We're going to take Wednesday off and uh, and focus on our filming project that we're doing. Uh, but we'll see you guys next week on Monday. Uh, God bless you all and have a great week. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.